Good morning. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. In the religious world today, there is a serious problem receiving a lot of attention and effort and funds to combat, to fix it. And it's commonly known as the Shidduch crisis. Young religious Jewish men and women have increasing difficulty finding a suitable mate for marriage. There are many causes for this, and there are many avenues to try to help. Just so that we are all aware, to introduce a couple that leads to a happy marriage is a fantastic mitzvah, and if we think we have the ability to do that, we should certainly try our best. But there is a tragic corollary to this problem, and that is there is a sharp rise in recent years in divorces in the first few weeks or months of marriage among religious Jewish couples. These cases are tragic. They often have lasting effects And also, there are many causes for this. The chief cause, I think, is when one side hides a flaw that would be a deal-breaker, but they hide that flaw and so that the spouse only learns about it after marriage. It could be some type of mental illness that is not treated and causes very serious problems, problems that make living together unendurable. There is a rise of situations where there is drug use or other kinds of addictions, gambling addictions. And these are, when they're hidden from the future spouse, they are very problematic. And when they are learned, often very soon after the marriage, it can lead, God forbid, to the dissolution of that marriage. It is obligatory on anyone who knows information to come forward with that information to prevent the harm to the unsuspecting person. Now, there are a lot of details in what to tell and how to tell, and to whom to tell. So I would just say, consult with an expert in this area of Jewish law. But if it is a serious issue, and you go to someone and they say to you, keep quiet, you'll disturb the shidduch, or it's none of your business, or why get involved, ask somebody else, because that's not the right person to take guidance from. One who participates in any way in hiding such information, whether by commission or by omission, shares the responsibility for the harm and often the shame that is caused. But allow me this morning to add two other elements the potential partners themselves can evaluate. I share this because often, in my experience, when I see that people are dating for the purpose of marriage, the two issues I'm going to mention are often not on the radar. 
and they're not even what people are thinking of to be looking for in a potential spouse. And I share this from the perspective of next week will be 42 years of loving, happy marriage. Baruch Hashem, thank God. And also from countless couples who have come to me over the last 40 years in tears, having ignored or overlooked these two elements. The first is a story I heard about a very great scholar, Rabbi Shmuel Rozovsky. He was the head of the yeshiva in Ponovich in Bnei Brak, one of the great, largest academies of advanced Torah learning in the religious world. And it happened once that a man traveled from Yerushalayim to Bnei Brak to speak to Rabbi Rozovsky to ask if there was a boy in his yeshiva that would be suitable for his daughter. His daughter was of marriageable age. He wanted to help his daughter find a mate. And he came to this great Rosh Hashiva. What better place to look than a room filled with three, four, five, six, seven hundred religious, studious boys? I mean, that's the place to go. So the Rosh Hashiva had a boy in mind that he thought might be appropriate. And so um, when this name came up, the father of the, of the girl started to ask Rabbi Rozovsky questions about this boy. Okay, what's he like? How many hours a day does he study Torah? Did he arrive at his studies on time? Was he spending his time diligently or maybe he was spending more time by the water fountain? <clears throat> when he came to class, did he ask relevant questions? Did he demonstrate intelligence in, in the learning that he was doing? And in this milieu, these are the criteria that a person would look for. Within this religious, scholarly area, these are the most important traits. But what I'm going to share with you translates to every different milieu. Just substitute whatever traits you're looking for. It could be, and the same idea that I'm going to share with you will be relevant, whether what you're looking for is, um, will he have a good job? Will he earn a lot of money? Are his family prominent in the community? Uh, whatever criteria you want, whatever criteria you think are important. So after the man received a very favorable report from the rabbi, Rabbi Rozovsky, about this man, he said, thank you very much. And he began to leave. He had what he needed. He had the information he needed. So Rabbi Rozovsky, in a very uh, respectful and, and gentle manner, said to him, uh, if you don't mind, if you could stay just a few more minutes, you ask me questions. Is it okay if I ask you a few questions? So the father agreed, and he sat down. So the rabbi said to this man, it seems to me that you're inquiring for a boy for your daughter, and it seems that you're happy with the report that I gave you. It would appear that you feel that all you need to know for your daughter is whether he studies hard, he is intelligent, and he does well in his studies. 
And again, translate whatever other set of criteria you want to use, religious, secular, whatever it is. However, said the rabbi, it's entirely possible that what your daughter is really looking for is to know that he is a mensch. It would seem to me, says Rabbi Rozovsky to this father, that there are some other questions you ought to be asking me that you did not ask me. And this is really the point. When we ask questions in this situation, the questions that we ask are not always the full list of the relevant questions that we should be asking. So Rabbi Rozovsky said to him, I think you should be asking me, how often does he brush his teeth? Is he pleasant to sit next to? Does he arrive first in the dining room and take the biggest portion for himself? Or does he wait and come in last and take only what is left over? What does he do when he's sitting at a table with a group of other young men and the water pitcher on the table is empty? Does he wait for someone else to go fill it? Or does he jump up and take it and fill it himself for himself and the others? Does he occasionally go into the kitchen to thank the staff who cook the food for him? And in those situations where the food that is cooked is not so good, does he still eat it with appreciation? and thank the staff for making it? Or does he make fun of it? I think you should ask, he continued, what does he do late at night when he comes back to his room in the dormitory and his roommates are already asleep? Does he take off his shoes before he enters so that he'll enter quietly and not disturb them? Does he make his bed in the morning? Rabbi Rozovsky said to this father, I think you need to check these things out because, you know, this is really what's going to determine how happy your daughter is going to be in this marriage. If he comes home after a long day of intense intellectual pursuits of studying Torah or whatever you supply, a hard day at the office or, or university or medical school or whatever it is, and he comes home and his, and his wife, your daughter, serves him dinner and he doesn't like it. It doesn't taste good. And she worked very hard to prepare it. How is he going to respond? Will he criticize it? Will he make a joke about it? Will your daughter be happy when it turns out that her father checked to make sure that he was superior in intelligence and in analytic thinking but he has no manners? He's not pleasant to be with? These are the questions Rabbi Rozovsky thought should be also on the list of questions to ask. Is he or she a mensch? Because the truth is, that is what makes or breaks a marriage whether it is happy or unhappy. Let me share one last insight. And this comes partially from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, 
He's discussing the book of Devarim, Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth of the five books of the Torah. And this fifth book is largely a series of speeches that Moshe is giving to the Jewish people, told to him by God, to prepare them for entering the land of Israel, which he is not going to go with them, but they're going to enter the land of Israel, and they're going to start this nation, they're going to start this society, idealistic society. And he has a series of warnings and reminders and lessons that they should learn to prepare themselves. And in that book, 92 times in Moshe's speeches to the Jewish people, he uses the word Shema. Listen, hear. At the time that Moshe is summing up his life and his teaching, before they're going to enter the land of Israel, 92 times Moshe says, listen. And the word Shema, the Hebrew word Shema, means so much more than just listen, than let the words come into your ears. It means pay attention. It means to internalize, understand what I'm going to say, respond and assimilate this into your daily life. That's what I want you to do when you shma, when you listen and hear and assimilate. The most famous of them, of course, is Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. But 91 other times, that's what Moshe is saying to them. Listen, heed, pay attention, hear what I am saying. Listen to what God is saying. Obey, internalize what he wants from us. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that Judaism is the religion of listening. And he says if you want to understand any relationship, especially between husband and wife, pay close attention to how they speak and listen to one another. Because seeing is not enough. Appearances can be superficial. Wealth, physical appearance, social standing, all of these that very often we do focus on, they're superficial and they can miss terribly what a person really is. Listening, writes Rabbi, Sa- Rabbi Sachs, listening lies at the very heart of a relationship. If we are really listening to another, it means that we are open to the other, that we respect him or her, that their perceptions and feelings matter to us. We give permission to them to be honest, even if it means making ourselves vulnerable in doing so. Listening does not mean agreeing, but it does mean caring. Listening is the climate in which love and respect grow. Listening, in its deepest and fullest sense, is the foundation of marriage. What makes a marriage happy and strong is not wealth, and it is not beauty, and it is not similar interests, and it's not any other criteria that so often people focus on, especially younger people focus on. That's not what does it. I would say that perhaps the best indicator of a happy and healthy marriage is do they both listen well to each other?
perhaps the most important criteria or indicator. Show me a couple who really listens to each other with all of the layers of meaning of Shema, of listening and hearing and internalizing and thereby respecting and paying attention to. You show me a couple who does that. And I will show you a happy marriage. My friends, I want to wish you a great day. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.